Turn with me today to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 4 to 7 today. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. And as you get there, you know, there are seasons in life where we're compelled to do things that we don't necessarily want to do. Uh, That's part of the process of growing up. Sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do. Uh, Certainly, uh, we could say if nobody ever takes out the trash, the house is going to be filled with stinking vermin. And that's not a kind of place to live in, right? It may not be a fun job, but it is a necessary job. Uh, To this, of course, we could add things like school. Uh, I don't often meet or speak with people who are really excited to be in school. It happens occasionally, and it goes in waves. Uh, You know, normally there's a little bit of excitement as you're younger, and then as you get older, it dives way down. And then maybe by the time you hit college, it's starting to work its way back up. But we're compelled to go to school. Uh, We're compelled to go to work, right? Uh, We may not like work. We may not like where we work. uh, But there's a certain amount of compulsion uh, that that is put upon us to work. Uh, I would add here, though, that we must not think of work as a curse of the fall. Work is something that God gave to humanity to do before the fall. So work is, in its nature, a good thing, but it is made much more difficult by sin. But the the compulsion to do these things, the compulsions that we have in life, they may be internal forces, right? Things that we want, things that we desire and seek, or they may be external to us, right? Parents are a compulsory force. Parents make us do things we wouldn't necessarily want to do, uh, but we need to do, and often for our good. Uh, Mowing the lawn is one example. Doing the dishes, uh, doing laundry, all these things we may be uh, compelled to do uh, by our parents, and we may not like it, but it will serve us well later in life when we don't have anyone else to do it for us. Wives and husbands, right? We compel one another to do some things. But what of God? Is God under compulsion? Uh, As we consider the wondrous topic of salvation, is God forced to save any, all, some, or none? Well, today as we continue in Ephesians 2, Paul directs our attention to to this issue, to to the answer to this question, and I want us to see today that salvation is God's act of free grace, rich mercy, and great love through which gives life to the dead and raises the humble to heavenly heights of glory. Salvation is God's act of free grace, rich mercy, and great love through which he gives life to the dead and raises the humble to heavenly heights of glory. 
So let us read our passage today. This is from the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is the word of the Lord, and I pray that you receive it as such. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So because of Christ's exaltation and glory being made superior uh, to any other name that is named, we see this at the end of chapter one, you know, that he is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, the end of verse 20, uh, and then verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, all right? Because of Christ's exaltation, we who trust in him are changed. The first three verses of this chapter are centered on what was true of every believer. And what is true of everybody who is outside of Christ, those who are not united with Christ in faith. And the reality of that, right, is all mankind is dead. They follow in the footsteps of the evil one. Their, their end is judgment. But Paul labors there to indicate that these things were once true for the believers in Ephesus. And by extension, by this was true of all who believe in Christ. But now that's no longer true. And why is that no longer true? Well, verse 4 answers that question for us, God. So let's jump into our passage today. And first I want us to see salvation is God's merciful love. Salvation is God's merciful love out of verse 4. And if we were to take verses 1 to 3, strip them from this context, strip out the, the past tense language used there, we would really be left in a depressing state. The scriptures then might read something like this. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you now walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power there, the spirit that is now at work in you, the sons of disobedience among whom we all now live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. That's a really nice Hallmark card, wouldn't it be? Send that, send that around at Christmas time. You're dead. You're, you're children of wrath. You deserve God's judgment. If God were a very different God, that rendition could be true. But God, the God of creation, the God who breathed life into the dust and fashioned for himself creatures after his own image, the God who spoke is a very different God than that. Who is this God? Well, Paul draws out in verse 4, right, two, two different traits of God, two different uh, aspects of God's character that make all the difference in the world, all the difference in for all eternity. 
And the first thing we see that God, this God, is rich in mercy. Right? See that? Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. And the word mercy here can mean something like kindness or compassion, a concern for those who are in need, pity. Mercy exists because sin exists. If there were no sin, there would be no need for mercy. But mercy exists because sin exists. Mercy is a stooping down of God to relieve the pains of his poor, miserable creatures. Mercy shows favor to those who are undeserving of it. Mercy withholds judgment and condemnation. Mercy can be temporary, uh, as it is the case for all those who are outside of Christ. All those who are outside of union with Jesus Christ through faith have mercy, but only for a season, only for a time. Listen, friend, you enjoy God's mercy now. You are the beneficiary of a God who is most compassionate towards you. He does not delight in your dying and being uh, cast into hell. But do not think that his mercy towards you means that you will not suffer the righteous judgment for your sins. Mercy towards those outside of Christ has an end date. There is a time when there will be no more mercy. Likewise, there is actually a sense in which the mercy of God will end for the people of God, but not in the same way. Rather, it will, it's not because we will pass into judgment, but rather it is because there's coming a day when we're going to pass out of this pitiful condition. We will no longer be miserable creatures. We will pass into the likeness of Christ. These sinful mortal bodies will be gone and we will have righteous immortal bodies. And we'll see more of that in a moment. But here, let's stop and consider the words of Peter in 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3, where he says, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? His mercy is indeed great because it gives us a living hope. Note that, that it's a living hope, not a dead hope. It's a living hope because Christ is living. It's a living hope because what our end is, is living, not dead, not the second death. He causes us to be born again, Peter writes there. He says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He does it. We don't. We don't choose it. Because we're dead, and he makes us alive. And Paul here in Ephesians describes God as being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Wealthy in mercy. He's not poor in mercy. He doesn't just have a little mercy here or there that he scrounges together enough to give to us. No, he's rich in it. He's full of mercy. He can lavish his mercy upon all of his people and still have leftovers. His cup runneth over with mercy. 
Never think, beloved, that God is stingy in his mercy towards you. He is not grudging in showing you mercy. No, our God is mercy and he is moved with compassion for his people. And there is coming a day, brothers and sisters, when we will stand before him in glory and then have something of a comprehension of the fullness of his mercy towards us. There are ways in which God is merciful towards us that we do not even understand here and now, that we don't even see here and now. There's untold things that he keeps us from and that he gives us what we need in ways that we don't even understand because we are uh, blind and dumb to it to some degree. So God is not stingy in his mercy towards you, but he is abundant in it he's rich in it and consider this in regards to the person of jesus during his earthly ministry the scriptures often record how he was moved with compassion for the sake of the people before him so a number of references here i'm going to shotgun them to you so get, get your pens ready matthew 9 36 matthew 9 36 when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Luke seven thirteen. Luke seven thirteen. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Matthew 20, 34, Matthew 20, 34. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And what's my point in all this? Why talk about Jesus' compassion? Because it flows from his mercy. He sees miserable creatures in pain and in their state of need and he is moved to help them he is filled with pity he's full of mercy and i just say that because think about this if you were in the place of jesus how many times reading through the gospel story do we come across uh, what we might affectionately call idiots, knuckleheads, right? And if we were in the place of Jesus, how quick might we be to call down an army of angels to destroy them all? Consider the apostle Peter. He cursed and swore he did not know Jesus because he was afraid of human reprisal. And Luke's gospel records something for us remarkable as Jesus is in the court, as he's being wrongly accused, as he is being blasphemed, and as, G as Peter is out in the courtyard cursing and swearing that he doesn't know Jesus, the scripture records that Jesus looked up and saw Peter. And Peter went away weeping bitterly. 
And in that moment, how many of us, after that kind of betrayal, how many of us would be willing to show mercy towards Peter and not strike him down dead? At the very least, we would be done with him forever. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection, as he's on the shore and the people, the disciples are out in the boat fishing, and as Peter recognizes it and understands it's the Lord Jesus on the shore, and as he jumps out of the boat and as he swims towards them, what does Jesus do? Peter, do you love me? And we may think that as he asks that three times to reflect the three times that uh, Peter denied Jesus, that Jesus was being really mean there. But that was an act of mercy. And in that moment, he restored Peter in front of all the other disciples so that they would know too. Jesus is full of mercy. God is full of mercy. He is rich in mercy. And the second thing we see here that Paul emphasizes about the character of God is because of the great love with which he loved us. This God is great in love. And what can we say about the love of God? We could spend a whole hour and not even begin to really unpack this topic of the love of God. What love God shows towards his creatures. We could go to that most famous verse of all, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The Greek word here for love in Ephesians chapter 2 is the Greek word agape. And I just give that to you because some of you may know that word. This is a self-sacrificial love. This is a love that seeks the good of the other even at the expense of oneself. And is this not the love that God has shown towards us? Is this not the love that Christ Jesus showed us? How has God loved you, friend? He created you. Was God under compulsion to create anybody? No. He doesn't need us. Let us understand that fundamentally about God. We do not add to God anything. We do not give him something he is lacking. God is full and complete in and of himself. And had he never created anything, he would still be full and complete in and of himself. And yet, because of the great love with which he loved us, he created us. He created you in such a way that you could enjoy him. That you could understand things. That you can move and see and hear and taste and touch. God has loved you, friend. He sent his son, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I understand that this only makes sense 
when we fully consider who we are before God. This makes sense most of all when we consider what a pitiful state we really are in. Who are you? You're a wretched sinner deserving of God's wrath. You are a child of wrath. You are evil and wicked. You're an affront to a holy God. You deserve death. And for some of you, every part of you may recoil at hearing these things. You may be getting very defensive when I say those things. And certainly if you listen to our culture, they will tell you that such ideology, such thoughts, such words, well, they're the work of an evil religion that needs to be canceled and stopped. They will tell you that I'm putting you down and I'm denigrating you. But what they won't tell you is the truth. They won't tell you that the reality of your situation before a holy God is just what I've said. You're dead. You're an affront. You're offensive. Because if they told you that, they would be condemning themselves. Listen, friend, absolute depravity, wickedness, fallenness, condemnation, that's true of you, that's true of me, and that's true of everyone outside of the rich mercy and the great love of God. After those famous words of, of Jesus in John 3, 16, uh, Jesus does continue, by the way, that's, we kind of only know that one, but he does continue. And he says in John 3, 19 and 20, John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But God, God has done something which only he can do. He has made possible our salvation. He has opened the floodgates of his love and mercy and worked on behalf of his creatures. And I want to run to the rest of our passage and finish that thought, but we're going to pump the brakes We'll get there. Hold this tension with me. None are worthy of salvation. God is not compelled to save anybody. And I know, again, that that wells up within us and we're like, but I, I, I deserve salvation. And if you say that, you've failed to understand what salvation is. God is not under compulsion to save anybody. None deserve it. There is nothing external to God that would force him to save anybody from their sins. So what is he moved by? His own character, who he is. Right? Listen to this fundamental declaration of God's character from the book of Exodus in Exodus 34, 6. Moses asks, asks to see God. Moses says, you can't see me. Or God says to Moses, you can't see me. No man can see the glory of God and live but I'm going to hide you away. I'm going to pass before you. I'm going to declare my name to you. And I would encourage you, Exodus 34, 6, memorize that verse and the next couple ones after that because these are fundamental to our understanding of who God is. And if you study and memorize these verses, you'll find it throughout all the pages of Scripture. Every time you come across and say, hey, wait a second, I know where that's from. 
this fundamental declaration of who God is. Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, and we'll go to verse 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So who is God? Well, he declares himself that he is the Lord, the Lord. And if you're, depending on your translation, you might see that that word Lord is in all uppercase or in small caps. And the indication there is this is the name of God that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. This is God declaring his name, that he is the great I am, the God who was and is and is to come, the, the eternal and unchanging God. So what God declared before Moses thousands of years ago is the God who is still God today. He hasn't changed. This is true of God today. You want to know who God is? Study and understand these verses out of the book of Exodus. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And just an aside there, are we slow to anger? He's abounding in hesed, or steadfast love, as we translate it. Loving kindness. He's abounding in faithfulness. And remarkable of all things, he forgives. But he won't clear the guilty. He is holy and he is just. And he will bring his wrath to bear on all unbelievers. Never mistake that. Sometimes we go too far in either direction. We say that God is all wrath. And there's no way he can save any. And sometimes we go in the other direction. We say God is all love and he has to save all. The scripture doesn't give either of those portraits of who God is. He is love, and he is also wrath. Understand that. Salvation is God's merciful love. And let's consider next that salvation is exalted life. And this is in verses 5 and 6. Salvation is exalted life. And Paul goes back in, in the beginning of verse 5 there. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he goes back to verses 1 through 3, right? And I think there's two reasons for this. The first is he's remarking upon the wondrous nature of the mercy and love of God, that it was towards sinners. It was towards transgressors. It was towards offenders of his holiness. I think the second reason is because we're slow to believe it, that we were dead in our trespasses. And I say that because in our day and culture, this is especially true. We don't want to believe that we are dead in our sins. And I, and I say this not only of the culture around us, but even American church culture struggles to believe that everyone outside of God's work of grace in Christ is dead in their sins and trespasses. How often the thought is within the American church that what we really need is just a little pep talk. If we just had a good motivational speech, well, salvation is ours. 
We need just a little bit of help to get into heaven. If we just had the right sock drawer organization, salvation is ours. Heaven is ours. And listen, I know I make light of that. I know I I do so. I use that because the language we use within the church sometimes is as trifling and trite as the idea of a sock drawer organization getting you into heaven. Friend, you do not need a little bit of help to get into heaven. The right music, dim lights, and a persuasive message is not enough to get you into heaven. Praying a prayer is not enough to get you into heaven. Attending Sunday school or Sunday service or prayer meeting or whatever it may be is not enough to get you into heaven. You need, friend, the work of God. You need his mercy and love. You need his Holy Spirit to awaken you to the truth that you may be born again because you are dead in your trespasses. You are dead in your sins. We need to be reminded of this often because in our culture, we hear the words, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like us. People have to like us. All right, we say try things like, if you don't like me at my worst, you can't have me at my best. No, we have to understand we're dead. And it reminds me of a silly skit from Monty Python. And there's this guy who has bought a parrot. And he takes it back to the store, he, the pet shop he bought it from. And he goes up to the clerk and he says, you sold me a dead parrot. And the clerk goes, oh, no, no, he's not dead. He's just sleeping. And the guy says, no, you, he's dead. He was nailed to the crossbar in the cage. That's the only thing that was keeping him up. He's dead. He's shouting at him. And he starts beating him against the counter. And the bird doesn't move. There's no life. He's a dead stuffed parrot. And a whisper, a shout, poking and prodding isn't going to bring him back to life. And friend, the same is true for you in your spirit. Outside of God's work to make you alive, you are dead. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Marvel at this. The dead live. Not like some kind of Frankenstein's monster. Not like a zombie that is half rotted. No, we are made alive together with Christ. And is Christ alive? Yes. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority. He is reigning and ruling from heaven right now. And for all who put their trust in Christ, they will live as he lives. We don't know what kind of body we'll have in heaven, but we do know this. We'll be like him. This corruptible body will put on incorruptibility, to which we say praise God. 
Our deadness in our sins is a great impediment that God through Christ removes. Now, does God have to show mercy to dead rebels? Is God under a compulsion to save anybody? No. And we have to confess this, that he would have been righteous, just, holy, to utterly destroy the world. Did he have to save Noah and his family when he flooded this world? He wasn't under compulsion. And yet he doesn't. Because he is rich in mercy. Because he is not willing that everyone should perish. He is patient. And in his great love, he saves some. He calls some out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And friend, if you are listening to my voice today, you can be part of that some. God calls you to repent. He calls you to trust in Jesus. He calls you to confess your sins and turn from him. Because every person who has ever been saved has been saved because of his grace, his unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor. And, and notice that as Paul writes here in verse 5, right, he interjects that. He can't help it. He's, he's writing and he just has to stop and say, by grace you have been saved. That's it. That's the, that's the answer. That's the reality. It's grace. It's all of grace. It's every bit of grace. If you are in Christ, it is because of the magnitude of God's kindness toward you. Because you are dead. You're unworthy of salvation. And yet grace, grace is given to those who are unworthy of it, for none on earth can merit his grace. And it wouldn't be grace if we had earned it. And what you need then is not a little pep talk, not a little help, not a little prodding. What you need is God's grace. So plead for it. You who are dead in your sins still, plead for the grace of God. Ask him to give unto you that which you cannot earn or ever repay. He is bountiful in grace. He is abundant in love. What does Paul write to us in Romans 5.8? Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for a people who had cleaned themselves up. Christ did not die for a people who just needed a little bit of help getting there. Christ did not die for the godly, but for those who were dead in their sins, those who were unworthy of it. By the way, we might ask, how could we ever be worthy of the life of the beloved son of the father? We, we could never merit that. And yet God did this. God gave his son. Christ Jesus came and lived the perfect life we could not, and he died in the place of sinners. What grace is this? And this is sal this salvation, our salvation, brothers and sisters, is exalted life. Look at verse 6. So not only has he made us alive together with Christ, verse 5, but verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God made us alive with Christ. He raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenlies. And do you realize that, that your life, beloved, is and is to be one of glory. 
Paul writes in the companion letter to this book of Ephesians and in Colossians, uh, in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he, he wants us to reflect upon this and what it means and how we live our life now. Listen to this, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If you have been raised with Christ, what does this mean for you? That you are to seek the things that are above. And as you direct your gaze upward, heavenward, Christward, what, what end does that lead you to? Glory. We know that when Christ appears, we will be with him in glory. When the trumpet of the Lord sounds and the voice of the archangel goes forth, when we are gathered up, where will we be? At Christ's side. We will be where Christ is. We will be in glory. There is exalted life coming for the believer. There is glorious resurrection life for the one who is in Christ. If you believe in Christ, if he is your Lord, if God has saved you, beloved, understand you are destined for glory. And I know that that sounds a lot like what the world offers to us. Don't we hear that everywhere? We, we hear things about how we should feel good about ourselves, that we're in glory now, that we have our best life now. But oh, what a dim and dreary place this is in comparison to the eternal weight of glory to come. Do you know why Paul was able to suffer what he suffered? How was Paul able to go to a Roman execution for naming the name of Christ? Because he knew that these things that he suffered were light, momentary afflictions in comparison to the eternal weight of glory to come. And what makes the difference between what Paul writes, what the Bible says, and what the world says is this, that what the Bible says comes from the mouth of God. These are God's words to his people, and these are words of life. These are words that cut, that they may heal. These are words that show us the ugly reality of who we are in the amazing God who breaks into that reality to reclaim and remake for himself a people. The difference is that the ways of this world are passing away and the ways of Christ lead to life. Hear the words of the Apostle John from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. He writes, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever and let me just remark here again where is christ seated at the right hand of the father 
in the heavenly places. That's chapter 1, verse 20. So what does that mean for us? Where are we seated? With him in the heavenly places. Now note that we are not at the right hand. Note that that's not what Paul says here. Christ is far above all rule and authority, including us. But we're with him. Brothers and sisters, the evil one may harass you and persecute you even to the point of death. But he is not victorious over you. Christ is victorious. Never forget that. Salvation is God's merciful love. Salvation is exalted life. And let's see finally that salvation is eternal riches of grace. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, right? And, and just pause here and say that here we have the purpose statement. Here we have the because, right? So that. What's the point? So that. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is coming a future in which we will experience the riches, untold and uncountable, of God's grace, his unearned favor. Our life in eternity will be unlike this current age. Yes, we will have bodies. Yes, we will be physically present. But there will be no more sorrow, sickness, or sin. We will live in the light of the glory of God. Right? The book of Revelation describes it this way. We won't need the sun. Why won't we need the sun? Because the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, will be our light. He will be our God and we will be his people. You, brother and sister in Christ, will have a deeper relationship with God than Adam and Eve had in the beginning. You remember how they used to walk with God? It'll be a deeper relationship than that. The exceeding riches of the grace of God will be poured out for us we will never want. We will never need. We will always have the fullness of the presence of God forever. Amen. What's this entail? Uh, Romans eight sixteen to 17 is instructive for us here. Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen to this. And if children, if we're children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will be heirs, co-heirs, right? Fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. And if we can fathom something of the love of God towards Christ, just pause on that and think about that. How much does God the Father love God the Son? How united is God the Father and God the Son? We could add into this God the Spirit. If we can fathom something of the benefits that Jesus, the Son of God, has in his Father, then we can start to fathom something of this surpassing wealth of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus. 
Salvation is God's act of free grace, rich mercy, and great love through which he gives life to the dead and raises the humble to heavenly heights of glory. And brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we do with this? We praise God, right? We worship him. We extol him. We serve him. We love him. For in considering these things, does not your heart sing with love for God? Does not your chest burn with love of God? Are you not moved by the grace of God towards you? Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a a fellow pastor. And he mentioned this very issue, right? That that as we sing of God's grace, if we're not moved by that, right? And, And we're not talking about emotionalism. I'm not saying that you should always be a weepy mess every time you come to worship. I'm not saying that every time you come to worship, you have to be the happiest person in the room. Because understand that sometimes you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes you feel the mourning and the grief of this world. Sometimes you're angry at the injustice in this world. So I'm not talking about base emotionalism. But if you're never moved by the word of God, by the grace of God, you really have to ask yourself, why not? Because as Paul writes here, right, go back to verse 5 when he just has to interject, by grace you have been saved. He can't help it sometimes. If you read through Paul's letters, you see that often. He'll just be writing on a tangent, and then writing, a, writing an argument, writing through about these great things of the doctrine of God, and he just has to pause and interject to him. He has to interject this statement of the glory of God. He has to interject because he is so moved by the grace of God. Paul writes this stuff here, and it should cause us to cry with joy, sing with shouting, and resolve to move forward with fierceness. And for some of you, beloved, this may awake in you the reality of the sin which you have been walking in. So why aren't we moved by the grace of God sometimes? It's because we're living in sin, and we know it. And it should make you feel the need for repentance. And that is a blessing. That is a good thing. That is a mercy of God. And so if you feel that, ask him for forgiveness. Go to him and confess your sin. Plead with him to strengthen you, to fight anew this very day against the sin which so easily ensnares us. Some of you, brothers and sisters have been too long languishing in the things of this world. Why, don't, why doesn't the grace of God excite you or move you or change you? Why doesn't it do something within you? And maybe because you're too much in the world. Let the light of the word cut through the fog of the evil one. He has saved you, not because you were worthy, but because of his love and mercy. You are saved not because you do good things or because you've said the right things, but because of his grace towards you. And children, understand this. If you are in Christ, God's love for you will never waver. If you should live to be a hundred, God's love for you will remain the same. It won't grow and it won't diminish. 
He will never love you more than He does now. And He can never love you less than He does now. So trust in this, the love of God. Trust in the proof, the manifestation of the love of God, the death of Christ. Has God loved you, brothers and sisters? He sent His Son to die for you. Of course He does. Some of you, though, are unmoved by this. You may be, feel cold to these words here in this passage. And if that is you today, you really do need to ask yourself whether you're in the faith or not. If the word of God, especially what we have before you today, doesn't excite you in some manner, doesn't, doesn't make you burn in your chest. And by the way, I get that from uh, the book of Luke. I think it's the book of Luke as the disciples were walking on that Emmaus road, uh, on that road to Emmaus. And as they were uh, unknowingly discussing with Jesus the things of the word. And as they get back and as they sit down for dinner and as Jesus breaks the bread and their eyes are open to see Jesus, they go, well, of course we shouldn't have known it was Jesus. Wasn't our hearts burning within us when we were talking along the way? Right? So if, if that's you, if there's coldness and deadness in your heart this morning, you may well be dead. You may have professed Christ, but if there's nothing of the grace of God that changes you, you may be dead in your sin. If your profession of salvation leads to no changes in your life, then you may be dead. Because living things look and act different than dead things. That's true in life, and that's true in the Christian life. A dead parrot is a dead parrot, and it's obvious. So too is a living one. There has to be a difference in you if you are in Christ. If indeed Christ is in you, there has to be change, because God takes you from life to death, from, from death to life. And for those who are dead in their sins, those of you who know you don't believe, those of you who don't care about the things of Christ, If you have not been born again of the Holy Spirit, understand that the only hope that you have for eternity is the unending wrath of God. You too will understand something of the immeasurable riches of God, but only of his wrath, his judgment, your condemnation. Because sin deserves death and judgment. Sin doesn't deserve salvation. Evil doesn't deserve God's mercy or love, evil deserves the wrath of God, but God. And don't mock those words. Don't forget those sweet words, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He loves those who deserve only wrath. And in his love, he made possible the forgiveness of sins. And so what the scripture is calling you to today is to trust in Christ. The Lord calls his people and his people hear his voice and they answer. Hear the voice of the Lord today and submit yourselves to him. Ask for his forgiveness. Admit that you're a sinner, right? Admit that, that you have sinned against the holy God and believe in Christ Jesus. Confess your sin. Confess him as Lord 
Turn from your sins. Turn to God. He can save you. He alone has the power to raise the dead. Trust in Him. And then from there, praise God. Worship Him with the whole of your life. Right? We worship Him together as we gather here. We worship Him in the preaching of His Word. We worship Him as we take the Lord's Supper. We worship Him as we give our tithes and offerings. As we gather together, we worship Him in prayer. But we also worship Him every time we step out of this door. We worship Him when we go to work and we work as unto the Lord. Worship Him because He is worthy of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, How marvelous are your ways. How wonderful your works towards us, a people who are unworthy of them. Father God, we know that pride wells up within us and there's, there's always that struggle because we believe that we are deserving of your grace. But Father, we confess this morning, we confess this day that the only thing that we deserve is death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. Oh, but Father, we confess as well what your word confesses, what you have given unto us to confess, that you are rich in mercy and great in love, that you are abundant in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And Father, we have iniquity and transgression and sin, which we confess before you this morning, which we desire in our heart of hearts to turn from and to turn to you and to strive to walk in holiness before you. Not that we may earn your favor, but, O oh Lord, because love of you compels us, because your love for us compels us and father we pray this day because we know that there are those who do not know you uh, we know that there are those who are dead in their trespasses we know that there are those who were if you were called them to account this moment they would have nothing to confess but their own sins and so they would die that second death forever experiencing your wrath forever separated from the goodness of your presence. Oh, Father, God, have mercy upon them. Lord, cause them to be born again. Father, give them eyes to see Jesus. Lord, give us boldness to proclaim the message of reconciliation. Give us boldness to call them unto Christ. To the praise of your glory. So, Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you and we praise you for your great mercy, your great love, the great grace which you have given unto us. We thank you, Lord, for salvation undeserved. We thank you, Lord, for your calling us, for your causing us to be born again. We thank you for your Holy Spirit given unto us in this regard. We thank you, Lord, 
for life. Glorious, exalted life. And oh Lord, help us to go from this place, go into this week, singing about the joy of your salvation. So we pray for your glory and our good. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.